Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Province Sports Podcast. Welcome to the White Tail Podcast. This is the Sedine Special Edition as we get ready to crank stuff out. I know you guys are all busy during uh, Sedine Week, joined by Ben Kuzma and Ed Willis. Um, thanks to our sponsor, Key West Ford, keywestford.com, BC's largest selection of Mustangs. If you're interested in that, check out their website. Uh, Ed, let's start with you. Um, we're going to see a week now where they've, you know, give marketing credit. They've done a great job on this 50th anniversary. Um one of the things we're doing is one of the top 50 moments that I know you're writing about is literally how they got the Sedins. And I know I've talked to Ben about this as well. I just, in today's NHL, I cannot fathom being able to engineer to get the second and third pick overall. It starts and begins there with Brian Burke, does it not? Well, well, today's NHL, forget that, the history of the NHL, I'm pretty sure, and I've got to go back over this, uh, I, I don't think a team has ever had two of the th- top three picks in the draft. So that's one. And it is a great cloak and dagger story of how Burke pulls this off because it starts with them getting the trade with Chicago, which was done weeks before the draft. So he goes in there with the fourth pick overall in his pocket. And where were the Canucks? Were they sitting second or third at that point? It gets really confusing. And then everything that happens that. So so that's just kind of the, the one level. For me, the other thing that jumps out at me is what if the Canucks don't make that trade? What if they come out of the draft from Pavel Brendel? And it it was kind of up in the air right up until Rick Dudley walks over and says, yeah, we have a deal for the Canucks to to, to, to move up and, and to get to get these two picks, to get the first overall pick, I'm sorry. Um, you look at, at all the trades that were made in and around there, all the players that were involved, the Tampa Rangers trade, which kind of fell on the end of that. All the players involved don't add up to one good Sedin season between them. It's it just astonishing to me that that there was so few impact players, not, 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 players who even had a decent NHL career come out of all those moves, and the Canucks come out of it for maybe the first time in franchise history with these two Hall of Famers, two franchise icons, a Hart Trophy winner, an Art Ross Trophy winners, and, 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 and the two players that carried this team from the NHL lockout in the first season out of the lockout in 05-06 to, to the moment they retired. Um, it, it really is an amazing story, and you kind of get inured to it because we watched them for so long. But when you come back on it in a fresh set with a fresh set of eyes and, and look and really consider what happened, boy, it's it's a remarkable tale. Ben, on that point, like I, 
You know, we've all had our battles with Brian Burke, and I certainly have during the days when he was working here for the Canucks, but you really have to admire a GM who literally has the balls to go out and get it moves like that done. As Ed said, like, not only has it never happened before, if he hadn't pulled it off, like, he really swung for the fence. Yeah, and we've documented it, and I'm sure it'll resurface again as we get closer to Wednesday. I mean, what he did as a Harvard-trained bully lawyer, um, probably in today's world, there'd be maybe a restraining order against him or maybe some charges of assault or whatever. The cloak and dagger, the actual bullying that he had to do to pull it off, I don't think that can be replicated in, in today's NHL. And um, But again, um, to your point earlier, I remember a seven or eight week period where Brian didn't talk to me, and it's almost a badge of honor uh, as a beat writer where you wrote something that the general manager didn't like, and he would usually put a finger in your chest and let you know how much he didn't like. And I'll just tell a quick story about uh, the other side of Brian Burke is that fact that when he did leave here and go to Anaheim, and uh, I think we were trying to surmise uh, how his hockey ops department would be put together, I remember calling Brian up after we decided to sort of mend the fences and, and said, what about this guy, Brian? I think he would work really well in that respect for you. And he said to me, if you write that in the paper tomorrow, you're going to look pretty smart. And I think we've all had those kind of interactions with Brian. Um, you know, there's another side to him. But boy, uh, <laughs> when, when he had the laser focus on what he was going to do that draft weekend, because, you know, the way things have worked out for the past with the Canucks head, and, you know, Patrick Stefan could have dropped and they would have ended up with him instead of the Twins. A lot of different scenarios could have come out. But th- that that's amazing. And when you go back and you look at it blow by blow, it's absolutely blows your mind because that would not happen today. One of the great ponderables as you kick scenarios around is if the Sedins don't end up on the same team. Because I think if you're a newer Canuck fan or maybe you just weren't paying attention to the start of their career, they were whipping boys for the fans. They did not come out of the gate strong. In fact, you and maybe it, you, you can look at a guy like Jake Furtanen. There were a lot of players or fans three, four, five years in who were saying, enough, these guys are never going to make it. And I really wonder what their futures had been had they been on two different teams. I yeah. a- I'm sorry, I asked the Sedins that question before they went into the BC uh, Sports Hall of Fame last May. And I said, what if you didn't end up on the same team? And I can't remember, I think it was Hendrick told me that if one of us was drafted, the other one would opt out of the draft, hoping that the team would pick them up the following year because they want they did not want to be separate. They wanted to play together. And I never heard that before. Interesting. I can only tell you, uh, Burke, in, in the course of a really interesting 20-minute phone call, said he went up to them before the draft and he said, if it doesn't happen today, stay patient. I'm going to get I'm going to get both of you on the same team. I don't know if it back to the to the early years. I don't know if it's revisionist history, but but when so the, the, the couple of people I've talked to who are intimately involved with them include like Mike Johnson, the assistant coach, uh, Marcus Naslin, Burke. Uh, Trevor Linden, they say, no, 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 we, we saw it. We just knew it, it would take time. And Okay, that's funny because you were members of a very small club. But having said that, these are, you know, pretty educated hockey men with a keen eye for talent. And and they, they talk about a couple of things that, that were apparent even when they weren't setting the world on fire. Uh, first first of all, being the hockey sense just, just jumped out, out at you. But Burke said, even though they weren't producing at a great clip, they, they noticed a couple of things. Once that cycle game just wore out the second pair defense on the other team. 
um, or out the, the Sedins too, for that matter. But but he said, you know, he would tie them out, and and they they would be able to get get stuff off that second defense appearing later in the game. The other thing is, it gave them a pretty good second power play unit, and even if they weren't always producing, they were creating stuff. They weren't losing momentum, and it was kind of their training ground. So just putting that out there, that that's kind of what what they saw. And, and like I said, you know, Marcus, Trevor, all these people said, oh yeah, we we, we could see it. We just knew it would take time. Yeah, we tend to forget that in his rookie year, Daniel had 20 goals. Yeah. And as much as they struggled those first few years, uh, I talked to Ed Jovanovski about trying to defend them even in practice. And you know how Jovo was. Yep. You know, he'd get a little pissed. And he said it was unbelievable. He said, you turn your back on them, it's one thing. But when you face them face-to-face, they you're mesmerized by them, even in practice, when they had to try to set them, uh, shut them down. So imagine in a, in a game scenario. So, um, again, um, generational players. I do remember hearing them talk, I think after, or maybe it was around the, the 2011 season where they did reference the fact that when they were drafted for all this talk and belief and faith and machination that went into getting them at that, they were obviously prized assets, that they honestly thought that they would play three, four seasons in the NHL and then go back to Sweden. And again, I don't know if that's just them being humble or if that's a, a reality that they were just sort of so unassuming, like, well, yeah, let's go try this out because we're hockey players, but then, you know, we'll go home. It, it, does, did it surprise you guys that they became so entrenched in Vancouver that, you know, this is where their lives are now? I think it's a Swedish thing to, you know, when you talk to some of the Swedish players that there, there's something, I don't know whether it's the water, something in Vancouver, because remember when Marcus was traded here and, and he struggled initially and there's some thought and he just kind of embraced the city. And, uh, you know, one, one of the things we're looking at during Sedin's week, there's been 27 Swedes play for the Canucks over the 50 years and, and uh, including Oscar Fantenberg, by the way. Um, and th- whether it's the, the ability to skate at an NHL level when they come over and the ability to process the game and think it. Most of the players I've talked to about the Sedins, they all reference the same thing. Whether they were having a good day or a bad day or in a scoring slump, you never know. The way they approach the game, the way they approach their lives, um, everything on the upbeat, uh, an underlying drive and will to succeed and never wearing it on their sleeves. As something's really bugging me, I'm in a horrendous slump. Things aren't happening. And to show that, they never showed it. And I think that's a Swedish thing. Yeah, it, it, I'm, I'm a big believer in storylines and storytelling and, and mythology and all those things. And one of the things as we worked through, and it actually came up when I was doing a piece on Marcus Nasland, it, it, Sweden, yes, but specifically Modo. And, and and the current that runs through Canucks history because it, it, it's it's not only Thomas Gradine who's really at, at you know the, the the apex of the pyramid here, but I asked Marcus about, about that and he goes yeah Thomas Gradine I wasn't really aware of Vancouver but I was aware of the connection with Moto and then he rattles off Thomas Gradine but then there's Lars Lindgren and Lars Moline forgot about that completely so he said yeah so we were all aware of them in Ornskoldsvik when we and I, I, am I pronouncing that right I've been Seek, trying to yeah, take I've been trying yeah, that's I've what all the kids are saying 20 years Seek. and I'm still not sure with yeah. it and I end up with this like really uh, really really awkward pronunciation anyways so Marcus's uh, knowledge and connection with the Vancouver market goes back through that now, now the twins come from the same town, and who do they turn to? Who's already here? Well, it's Marcus and and Matthias Olin. I understand is from another part. As Berkey said, he's from up there in Reindeer it's, Country. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but, but they have this, so 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 they have this support system 
of 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 players deeply respected in their hometown in their country who were pretty good NHL players when they arrived too so they're set up that way and and Burke did mention one thing about that that support system they had that Olin didn't have when he arrived in Vancouver when Naslin didn't didn't have when he arrived in Pittsburgh and I think that helped them and you know that they've referenced that so you know I I think they were going to get there eventually but 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 I think having that support system gave them a comfort level then then the evolution of them as these you know shy kids who came in and it's funny you talked about you know, tiring out the second unit, but tiring themselves out. I think they became legendary for the stamina that they built up. We all saw the pictures that Canucks would give us of them running the grouse grind and everything else. They became the consummate professionals and then they became mentors. I mean, certainly for a guy like Alexander Edler as well, who's still here. And again, Ed, I can still remember columns that you wrote when it was like, we've seen flashes of Edler as this young player. If he could only do this on a regular basis, he could be a Norris Trophy winning defenseman. Now we can argue whether or not he delivered on on enough of that promise but they played that role of mentor not just players like him but other players now that we've seen yeah that, that you know and ben ben i believe is writing about it and it, it really is an interesting and kind of underreported aspect of canucks history is this swedish connection that runs back like i said all the way through Gradin. but i i, I it, has there been a period in their history where they didn't have a significant contributor from Sweden in the lineup, there might have been no. might be a year or two somewhere yeah. in the you know when Gradin started to lose it in the eighties. But yeah, no, it's it's a big part of the story and will continue to be a big. Yeah, story. I was going through that last part night, and it seemed to be from decade to day, the decade. And an interesting thing too, when you fast forward this thing, and I was talking to Elias Pettersson about this last year, just transforming to North American society, assimilating to a different league different type of game, different size rink. And to have Swedes in the room, you mentioned Edler and Ericsson. And man, they he went on and on how he not only knew about them as a fellow Swede, but how they made the transition so much easier for him. You know, whether it's things like opening up a bank account or trying, you know, trying to find a place to live. Uh, and th- that's often lost on people don't understand that as a professional athlete. It's one thing if you're from North America, but if you're from another part of the world. And I think that that's helped the transition. And, you know, uh, I talked to Cliff Running about this the other day about the Swedes, and he said, you know, uh, the one thing about them, you know, the one thing I always remember about, you know, whether it was Thomas Gradin or whoever, they would um, always take time to with you. They would really formulate a good answer. They just wouldn't blurt something out. And I said to Cliff, do you know who you just described? And he said, who? Elias Pettersson. And isn't it amazing a kid that young, right from the right off the bat last year? And maybe again, that's a Swedish thing. I don't know, but to formulate an answer as such a young kid and give you something and not just a cliche uh, was really quite remarkable. Do you guys have a moment, either on or off the ice, in all your years covering them, that really stands out to you? Because you both covered their whole careers. Well, it's crazy. We were talking about that before we came in, and and and, and for me, I'm sorry, it, it will always be walking into that dressing room after Game 7 of the 2011 Stanley Cup Final, and, and it is bereft of Canucks, and the Twins are standing there in front of their stalls like they always did. They're accountable, they're answering all the questions, and they're basically speaking for the whole team, if not the whole city and the whole province at, at, at this point. And uh, I, I, again, that just said so much uh, about them to me, and it, it was just such a uh, an arresting image to, to walk in there in this like like supreme moment of defeat, and what it revealed about their character, and quite frankly, what it revealed about the characters of a lot of the other players on that team. 
I think uh, the final home game at Rogers Arena that they played, and you know game day skates, are they're out there for 10 or 15 minutes, and there's a little bit of back and forth with everybody, and it's time to play the game. They stood there. There were a few of us. The guys had basically covered them forever, and we talked for 20 going on 30 minutes on game day about the game, about life, about stuff happening in their personal lives, away from the rink. I save that because it's the kind of thing when you're, you know, I'm going to go back and listen to this again because it wasn't, it was a kind of a life lesson. These two superlative players who are about to play their final home game on home ice wanted to talk about the city, wanted to talk about their kids, wanted to talk about things they're going to be able to do, like skiing or whatever. That's, that one always resonates with me. And the other one is um, running into Henrik Sedin at Whole Foods and we're discussing what kind of apples we like the best. We're having a big discussion about apples. <laughs> I like the Granny Smith. He likes the Macintosh. We're going back and forth. Well, That's so, but such he was a cliched so, Vancouver but story. But he was so human. It was just a, hey, what do yeah, you think I've about got, this apple? I've got one of those. It, you know, it, it's funny. Like, like for all the interactions it had over the year, I never got the feeling I knew them, but, but I knew them. Like, because I think who they were as players, the way they conducted them, that's who they were. Because they treated everybody the same. And not like you needed no, a secret no, decoder or ring. Per, no, you know? 100%. Yeah. And, and, and you kind of kept looking, you know, for kind of a, a way in and maybe to pull back the curtain and reveal something, you know, something a little else. I, I just don't think it was there. So my story is I, I, I'm meeting my my uh, my wife for, for lunch and we're somewhere on the west side and we sit down and this kind of, you know, you kind of feel a presence sitting beside you turn and it's Daniel. And he's meeting his wife for lunch, and it's it's a little awkward. You don't know whether to engage and all the rest of it. And uh, my my wife, God bless her, doesn't really follow the hockey <laughs> real closely. So we kind of end up we start chatting, and I introduce him, and I say, you know, that my my wife's a high level educator. She's a principal at a girls' private school, and they, they say, anyways, they start talking, and they start talking about kids, about education, about where Daniel's kids are, and it, it's actually fascinating listening to this because clearly this is such a huge problem priority in his life and so they end up you know we pay the bill and we end up and we're walking out of there and again Kathy looks and she goes she I'm pretty sure she knew it was a Sedine I'm going to give her the benefit <laughs> of the doubt there but she certainly didn't know which one and she wasn't picking up on the clues but it was it was kind of a cool unguarded moment that again revealed about where the priorities were and you know just and and you know their place in this community so while Daniel and your wife were chatting about education you didn't strike up. Not not so much. You're the third, no, you're the third with, with Daniel's wife talking no, no, about no, no, not so favorite much. recipes. I know one of the one of the all I can remember one of the kids was really into horses as 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 you'd expect. Uh, I think they played soccer and yeah, it's 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 kind of lost in the mist of time. Yeah, so. it, it says a lot. Like right now, since they've been retired, I know uh, Patrick Johnson, who's on the road with the team right now, had tried to talk to and Daniel in particular about his running marathons. Or I know they coach soccer and and they've refused to talk about it. They do not. They're like, no one cares about this. We're not the story anymore. And that mm -hmm. says so much. No, about I, I told PJ he's not going to talk to you. You're just a grasshopper on the beat. <laughs> where do they, I'm, where I'm do doing they, that story. Where do they rank uh, for you guys? in t terms of greatest Canucks? Oh, one and one A. There's no doubt in my mind. Yeah, and, and probably... Who, who's one? <laughs> I, I, th I think Henrik just because he had the one transcendent season. And I know Daniel's 2011-2012 was great, but, but, but Art Ross, uh, Hart... Um, he was the captain for a reason, you know, and you were, we're talking about such a fine line 
uh, between the two of them. But Probably uh, a Purple Heart for Henrik having to stand in front of us night after night after all those seasons that weren't very good. Yeah, yeah. There's something to be said for that because eventually, I mean, Marcus sometimes used to wear it on his face. Mm-hmm. He, he knew it was it was a tough go some nights, but Henrik handled it with uh, tremendous aplomb. It is interesting though because had Daniel not had the injury that one year, they that one season they might have been closer, right, in terms of their numbers. Still and, pisses me off yeah. to the, to this day. That Duncan Keith, it was like such a cowardly check. Uh, and, 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 you know, for him to get suspended five games at the tail end of a regular season that meant absolutely nothing. Uh, I, I'm still not sure. Daniel will argue differently, and he had he had productive seasons after that. I'm not sure if he was ever the same player after that, Chuck. Most players will tell you that, you know, whether it's a back injury or whatever, I'm X amount of percent, and they'll never give you the percentage. Yeah. Um, I, I did want to get into um, maybe other Canuck greats and – and who should be next to go in? But I, I think that would take too long, and we've we've gone long enough here. And I want to save something for that can be a topic for next week. We'll talk How about, about one-word answers, yeah, and and then we can get into well, it right I, later. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, well, tease. I believe that's called a tease, well, isn't I, I, it? In, see, in, in this one of the business, is I know I'm that, considering a change in careers. By the way, that's one. <laughs> I, I know that Ben has had a conversation with with Ryan Kessler, and I think you can make an argument with the Canucks as we've we've examined the glorious stories in their history. They've only won a handful of trophies, and Kessler's one of them who's won a major player trophy. And I think in in other organizations, you could maybe make that argument. But I mean, is there any? We'll go into this in detail next week. But Ben, is there anyone for you who I think is is next on deck? Well, there's a trio there. There's Ryan Kessler, who you mentioned won a Selkie Trophy. Probably should have won at least more than one. I think he was the best defensive center in the game for years. Not to take anything away from Patrice Bergeron or, or Jonathan Taves, um, won a series single handedly, 41 goals. You've got Ryan Kessler, you've got Roberto Luongo, and you've got Todd Bertuzzi. And you know how this marketplace is. Maybe not so much the marketplace. I guess it's the franchise because it's not what you did. It's how you left. Ryan Kessler wanted out. I had a very engaging, long conversation with him about that the other night. Um, we know what happened, Roberto's contract and, and leaving and trying to find a place to play. And Bertuzzi's... You know, the Steve Moore stuff, whatever. It, it's really fascinating to me that how this organization is going to go forward from here and recognize people who need to be who are deserving of something. And I'm, I'm focusing in on, on Ryan Kessler on a piece. And uh, I think uh, at least the Ring of Honor. And you could probably go higher than that. But boy, in this marketplace, it's going to be so polarizing because for six people who admired everything he did, six people had a problem with him. So... Uh, it's going to be a pretty interesting piece. Yeah, for me, it's Luongo, and yeah. and, and, and you've got to prioritize. You've got to make a judgment. And and Luongo was just such a transcendent figure. Like from the moment he arrived here, and he was right in the middle of it. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. To me, there's no question. Luongo was the next guy. And and yeah, we'll it, talk. We'll talk about it more yeah, next week. Absolutely. But, but, but one of the things with Luongo, it's so interesting you say that. Ed, I, I remember that. <laughs> He was almost like what Reggie White was to Green Bay in the NFL where, you know, that was a small market where they were like, big players won't go there. And there was such insecurity in Vancouver that Luongo was going to leave as That's soon right. as his contract yeah, was done because yeah, yeah. Pavel had left and, and people didn't want to come and play here and everyone was going to the Rangers. And to have a superstar say, no, I like it here. I want to be part of something was really unique. So Yeah, and that that first season of his ranks with the greatest individual Canucks seasons of all time, it's just a notch below Henrik's season. In my opinion, you know, Hart Trophy finalist, Vesna finalist, he was that team that year. And I think with him, there's this fascinating story 
that once that Twitter account became known, that, that, there yeah. was a completely different side of his personality that we all knew. So. And it's funny thing too, again, um, at the end of it all, I mean, when he decided to retire as opposed to go to camp and say, I'm not medically fit to perform, the Canucks will tell you, wow, that cap recapture penalty is really sticking in our craw because that's how they think. And that gets back to my point about how did people leave? Don't critique a win, Ben. Don't critique a win. <laughs> All right, gents, thank you very much. Thank you, Darn, for your patience sitting through uh, these podcasts here today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Key West Ford, keywestford.com, BC's largest selection of trucks and also Mustangs if you want them. Uh, we'll be back next week, folks, with all the Sedin's Week, uh, Jersey Retirements, Insights, Linden, uh, Naslin, Bure, the whole bit. So thanks for listening and talk to you later.